All right, well, good morning. Welcome to River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to worship with you guys together this morning. Looking forward to opening God's Word with you. Uh, this morning we are starting just a, a really short, brief little series, uh, taking a look at uh, what it is that we believe about the Word of God and why we believe those things. And I think as we begin a new year, it's just important. Uh, every week when you show up here at River City, uh, without fail, we're always going to open the Word of God together. And because it's central to not just to what we think and believe, but because it's central to how we know God and relate to Him. And so as we start a new year, I'm excited just to spend a couple of weeks just thinking about what, what it means for us, what, what it is that we believe about the Word of God, why that is, and how that undergirds everything else about our faith. And so I'm looking forward to doing that. And then uh, after that, we're going to spend basically the better part of the spring here together, um, walking our way verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians. There is a bunch of really good stuff in there that is so helpful and applicable as we seek to live as God's people in a world that is uh, really not that for him. And, and so uh, there's so much good stuff in there that will encourage and challenge and shape us as God's people. And so looking forward to walking through that stuff with you. And so, like I said, this morning, we're just going to start out just a couple of weeks, just spending a few weeks thinking about God's word and what we believe about it, how that shapes our thinking and our lives and, and our church here. And and so I think it's just important to, a lot of that comes back to uh, what we think about God's word, comes back to uh, a guy about 500 years ago by the name of Martin Luther, he, he uh, would have been about 500 years ago in October that uh, Martin Luther walked across the town of his, uh, walked across his town to his own church, to, to kind of the door of his church that kind of functioned like this public bulletin board. And, and there he posted kind of these 95 theses or 95 statements that, that he wrote outlining a number of issues that he had become convinced that the church of his day was in error about. And and his action was, a, was, a, was an invitation to public debate. It was an invitation to discourse. He, they weren't intended to be inflammatory. They, they weren't intended to be divisive. Instead, they were intended to bring up debate. One author kind of puts it like this, is that his actions that day were kind of the equivalent of like writing a feisty blog post, right, that you uh, wanted to be the source of developing some conversation around an idea. And so while there were numerous issues that Luther was convinced that the church of his day had gone astray on, they all really stemmed from one underlying issue. There was kind of one root thing that was at the, at the root of almost all of the issues that Luther brought up. And it's simply this, that, that the word of God, the Bible, had lost its position as the source of highest authority in the church and in the world. The Bible had lost its position as the, as the thing which held the highest authority. And the results were becoming increasingly disastrous. And yet, the problems Luther was facing in his day because of the abandonment of the supremacy of God's word are actually not just old problems. In fact, they're problems that the church in every age, in every day, continues to face. You see, in Luther's day, it was the words of men and church tradition that had taken the place of God's word as the ultimate source of authority and truth. And, and in our day, it's things more like reason and intellect or personal experience that, that trump God's word as the, as the thing which holds the highest authority in our, in our lives and in our understanding of what is true. But the reality is, is that no matter what is substituted for God's word as the ultimate authority on truth, the results are always disastrous. It doesn't matter what it is. 
And the reality as well is that the church in every age is in danger of allowing something or someone to take the place of God's word as the source of our highest authority. And so that's why it's so important for us over the next couple of weeks, what I want to do is, is to remind us about what it is that we believe about the Bible and why it is that we believe those things. Because the truth is, is that what we believe about God's word, what we believe about the Bible, it fundamentally changes everything. And see, and my hope is that as we study both your clarity and your confidence regarding what you believe about the word of God and why you believe it, that both of those things will grow. And that in response to that, what will happen is that you, we will be all the more committed as individuals and as a community to both surrender our, our minds and our hearts and our lives under God's word and continue to be willing to submit ourselves unto it. That God's word would be the thing that holds the highest authority, that shapes our hearts and lives. And I am convinced as well that if that is true, what will happen is that it will result in our joy and also the glory of God. And so to that end, let's pray. We'll dive into our study this morning. Jesus, thanks for our time to gather and study your word and, and to be shaped by it. God, and as we begin a new year together, as we head into a new year seeking to understand you and to learn to love you and follow you more, God, uh, at the root of that is our understanding of your word. And so, God, we pray as we begin just this short series, God, that you would be gracious to inform not just our hearts, but our minds as well, so that we might be a people who think rightly and critically about your word, so that we know it and understand what it says and why we believe it and why it's worth giving our lives and surrendering and submitting our lives to you. And so, God, for our good and for your great glory, would you help us to uh, fundamentally root ourselves in the authority of your word? God, for our good, for your great glory, we ask all of that. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, before we dive into our study this morning, I just want to highlight something. Uh, a lot of times in, in sermons, I, I'm going after your heart. I want to stir up your affections and your passion for Jesus and for the Lord. And some sermons I'm going after your hands, right? The, how, what it is that we might do, how we might live, and what we might do in response to God's word. But, but sometimes I need to kind of go after your mind and, and what it is that you know and what it is that you believe. You see... Um, I'll be honest, though, we're going to pack a lot in this morning, and a lot of it's going to, we're going to kind of move pretty quickly through a lot of it, and there's a lot of information here, but I need you to understand that it's, it's really important. You see, God is not after Christians whose faith is blind and ignorant. God is after a people whose faith is robust because their minds and their hearts are deeply invested into it. You see, God's, God is the wisdom of the age. He's the wisdom of all ages. And so we want to honor him both with our hearts and our minds. And so we want to think, think critically about his words. All right, well, with that in mind, I just want to begin with this. The, there was, there was a, a one doctrine that kind of lay at the issue, lay at the foundation of the issues that Martin Luther brought up those 500 years ago as he began the Reformation. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an underlying issue that's at the problem of most of the problems that the church has faced throughout history. And it's simply the doctrine of this, the doctrine of sola scriptura. It's a Latin phrase. It just means this. It's the, it's the doctrine that scripture alone is our highest authority when it comes to matters of faith and 
practice, that Scripture alone is our highest authority. And at the heart of the doctrine of sola scriptura is the, is the question of authority. It's who or what holds the highest authority in determining what we believe and how we live. Where do we go to find the truth about God and about, his, and about what he has to say and about what it, who we are and how we are to live? And, and so as we figure out how to know God and relate to him, the question is, wh- whose opinion holds the most sway? What, what's the final, what's, where does the buck stop? Is it our own personal experience that's going to be the final judge? Is it our own reason or our own intellect that will accurately weigh all the various options? Is it our own traditions? Is it, is it what we've always done that's going to hold the ultimate sway? Or is it going to be scripture that's the litmus test for what is true and right and good? You see, only one of these things can be our highest authority. And what I want to argue this morning as we study is that only one of them should be. You see, and it's the word of God. You see, the doctrine of sola scriptura means that we look to the Bible to be our highest authority in all matters of faith and practice. And we measure all truth in reference to it. Scripture is the starting point for our investigations into what is true about God and about his world, and it is the final judge over our findings. And when we disagree with it, it's us that is in error, not God and not his word. I just want to be clear. Affirming the doctrine of sola scriptura, it doesn't mean that scripture is our only source of truth, right? There are plenty of things that are true that the Bible doesn't talk about, right? Two plus two is four. The Bible doesn't teach you that, but that is indeed true, right? And so the Bible is not our only source of truth. We utilize truth that's not found in the Bible all the time, right? But everything else that we, everything that we learn about God and about his world, we want to interpret that in light of his word. Likewise, Sola Scripture doesn't mean that Scripture is our only authority, right? It's not that it's our only truth. It's not that it's our only authority, right? To say that Scripture is our only authority is not only unbiblical, it's just pretty unwise, right? Um, God himself establishes lots of different forms of authority, whether that's church leadership or government or parents in the lives of their children. There's all different kinds of authority, right? It's more helpful to kind of think of, of the idea of God's word being our highest authority, kind of like uh, think about the Supreme Court, right? It's not the, the opinions of lower courts don't matter. It's just that they don't matter if they're in contrast to the opinion of the highest court, right? That's the one where everything else flows from. You see, Scola Scriptura doesn't mean that we don't utilize experience or reason or tradition as we seek to understand God. It simply means that those things must be subordinate to it. Our experiences can be misremembered and misinterpreted. Our reason and our intellect are often incomplete. Our traditions can often be unfounded. And in any of these things, depart from the Bible's teaching, then they are to be rejected. You see, only one thing can be our highest authority, and only one thing should. It's the very word of God. In the Apostle Paul's final letter to, uh, from prison, he, he's writing a letter to this young pastor, his name is Timothy, and, and this huge emphasis of Paul's letter is that his encouragement, his advice, his challenge to this young pastor is that he would, that he would go all in on God's word, that he would put all of his chips in on the supremacy and the sufficiency of God's word in all matters of faith and practice. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul, he's writing to Timothy, he says this, in verse 13 he begins, he says, evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
But as for you, he says, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from who you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all scripture, he says, is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, what I want to do in our time this morning is just highlight three reasons that the Apostle Paul gives us as to why Scripture, why God's Word should be our highest authority as we think about truth. The first is simply this. Paul gives Timothy this reason for being, why Scripture should be our highest authority, and he says the first reason is that it's God's Word. First reason is that it is God's very Word. Verse 16, he writes this. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed. The Bible in clearly, emphatically, undeniably claims to be the very word of God. The Bible labels itself uh, nearly 50 times as the word of God. It, over 250 times it is called the word of the Lord. Almost 300 times we read throughout the Bible, the Bible says, thus says the Lord. You see, if you want to find out the truth about something, you go to the source. And if we want to find the truth about God and about what he has to say and about how we relate to him, then we go to his very words. See, when Paul says that all Scripture is breathed by God, what he means is that every word of Scripture is inspired by God. You see, God is the author of the whole Bible. Of the whole Bible, He inspired all of it, and it's but it is written through human agents. This is called the doctrine of inspiration. And it's the, it's the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit over the writers of Scripture such that without overwhelming the personalities of the writers, the Holy Spirit superintended their writings and so that their words are the very words of God. Now, what I want to do just briefly is, is highlight some, some misunderstandings about what the doctrine of inspiration is all about. You see, the doctrine of inspiration is not the same thing as dictation. Sometimes what I think people assume is that what happens, how the Bible got written is God just kind of like summoned a scribe over and was like, all right, bro, I got some stuff I need to communicate. Write this down, right? And then that's the whole Bible, right? And there are, there are definitely parts of Scripture where God literally tells somebody, hey, write this down and tell people this. But overarching, that's not really what we see happening. You see, uh, God didn't just summon some scribe and make him write all, tell his hand fell off. The, uh, there were parts that were dictated, and the Ten Commandments are literally written by God on a piece of stone. But, but that's not really what happened. The, that's, not, that's, not the, that's not the essence of what inspiration is about. Uh, additionally, inspiration, the doctrine of inspiration is not kind of like a seance, right? It's not like God just didn't like possess somebody and just supernaturally write through their arms, right, and just make something happen. See, the prophets and the apostles, they weren't possessed. When you, when you read scripture, what you see is that the letters written by the apostle Paul, they sound like they were written by him. And the the Ezekiel sounds like Ezekiel, and all these other writers of Scripture, they sound like the authors who wrote them. You see, the, we see the writer's tone and their style in the way that they write. And I point these things out, not just to give you more information, but because to, to think that Scripture is written just by dictation or kind of by a seance or possession or something like that, those are really indefensible positions that when any amount of scrutiny is applied to them, they just break down really quickly. And I don't want your faith to be eroded by unfounded beliefs that aren't helpful and aren't true. You see, those things aren't, that's not how it was written. Instead, what we see is 2 Peter 
He tells us, he highlights the idea that scripture was written, that inspiration is not dictation, it's not possession, it's the idea of concursus, that there are, act, that there are two forces that are acting together as one entity to create the Bible. First Peter, Second Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, he says it this, he says, prophecy never came about by the will of man, but men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so we see that each word of God is inspired. Each word is the exact word that God wanted to be used as he wrote his words down. And as well, all of the Bible is equally inspired. The fancy theological term that you are free to forget is verbal plenary inspiration, right? It just means that not just that all it just means that all of God's word is equally inspired by him. That aren't there are often parts of God's word that are more helpful or maybe more practical for our everyday life, but None, none of it is less written by God or more written by him. It's all inspired by him. And so that's important. And so the Bible doesn't just claim to be the divine word of God. It backs up those claims all the time. And we don't have time to do the deep dive on that. But suffice it to say, the sheer volume of fulfilled prophecy simply cannot be explained another way. And so Paul reminds Timothy and us that the scripture should be our highest authority because they are first and foremost the very word of God. The second reason that Paul gives Timothy for the supremacy of God's word in our lives and in our churches is simply this, that it is trustworthy. Verse 14, he says, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. See, like Paul, Timothy had become convinced of the trustworthiness of the scriptures, convinced not only enough to believe it himself, but to give his life to teaching others the truth of the scriptures. You see, it's one thing for something to have the highest authority in our lives. It's another for that authority to be unwarranted. You see, it's useless if it's not trustworthy. And so we need to ask the question is, what, what, is, what does it mean for the Bible to be trustworthy? And I think there's two parts of that. The first is that it's reliable, and the second is that it's true. See, the reliability of the Bible is often brought into question. The argument goes something like this usually, right? It's a really old document. It's been copied a ton of times. It's kind of like the ancient version of telephone, right? The more you copy it, the more errors you get. All that stuff happens, and you just can't trust it. It's just, I'm sure it's unreliable. There's just no way we can really trust what's going on in there. And, and the reality is, is that, is that the, the Bible is an old book that has been copied many times, but the reality is that it is the single best preserved document in basically all of ancient history. See, scholars estimate that there are upwards of somewhere around 150,000 variants or, or mistakes that, they would, that, uh, that are found in the thousands and thousands of, of manuscripts of the ancient text of the scripture that we have. But when you do the digging, what you find is that 99.9% .9 of any of those differences are minuscule things. They're things like a, a letter, a, a word was misspelled, or there's an insignificant word that was, uh, that was just forgotten or, or, not at, or not included, or sometimes two words are flipped in place, right? You might see Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, right? There are often things, those are, make up the vast majority of those variants that they see. And when all the facts are put on the table, what you find is that there are only basically 50 examples of any differences, any discrepancies throughout all of those manuscripts that have any real significance. And even then, none of the, none of the central doctrines of the Christian faith or any moral commandment is affected by them. You see, the sheer volume of manuscripts that we have of the Bible actually helps us to ensure its accuracy because the errors are much more easy to spot. 
See, the Bible is by an enormous margin, an enormous margin, the most well-documented book in all of ancient history. There are vastly, vastly more copies, especially of the New Testament manuscripts, copied with greater accuracy and earlier dating than any other secular classics from antiquity, right? You think about the works of Plato or Homer or even the, the, the Roman historian Tacitus on, on which much of our history books are based. Uh, the, the copies that we have of Scripture are exponentially more reliable than anything we have by any of those other authors. You see, even scholars who think that what the Bible has to say is totally insane, they're not arguing that what we have is unreliable. The very words that we have are very incredibly consistent. Which brings us to the next question. How did we get the Bible that we have, right? Who decided what was in and what was out? How did that happen? Like the Da Vinci Code, was there some kind of massive cover-up to kind of secretly include the best parts and, and pull out the, the things that might be embarrassing? Was there some secret regime that was trying to crush dissenting opinions and create this masterfully crafted document? Well, the, the unscandalous and simple answer is no. Uh, the bottom line, right, is that Christians were too busy trying not to get murdered, right, to develop some type of systemic system by which they would create some coerced document for the world to have in the future, right? Um, literally, a tech, like, it was spanned across three continents in the mode where the primary mode of transportation was by foot, and a text message is literally a dude carrying a letter hundreds of miles, Right? It's just, it's just not even feasible to think that that is really what happened. No, it's much simpler that, especially regarding the New Testament. Nobody unanimously decided what was in and what was out. Instead, the various councils that we have recorded in the 2nd and 3rd and centuries AD affirmed basically what the churches themselves had already decided. See, the criteria by which the, the churches of the, the early churches uh, affirmed uh, the, what was the word of God and what was not, they had basically three criteria that they used. The first was this, was it written by an apostle or an eyewitness to Jesus during the time that he was alive? Second, does it match up with everything else we already have that we know is the word of God? And secondly, was it widely received by the local churches? Those are the three criteria that they used to basically figure out what, what, what of these writings is the word of God. To go one step further, even if there was some secret coup, why would they have left such embarrassing material in, the, in scripture, right? One author, he writes it this way. He says, in higher education, they say that history is written by the winners, if that's the case, we can expect the winner's version of history to be pretty one-sided. Their causes always to be true and just. Their leaders noble and heroic and idolized. Their own roles sanitized of all wrongdoing. And yet the gospel stories contain plenty of material that seem counterproductive. Jesus' hometown people reject him, and he's killed by Israel's sworn enemy, Rome. Peter, who is basically the leader of the early church, is portrayed as an unfaithful, loudmouth, bumbling idiot. None of this material makes any sense as a fabrication or a cover-up. Instead, all of this embarrassing material, he writes, gives the accounts a sense of authenticity. You don't include that stuff unless that's actually how it happened. Last argument I want to make for the reliability of the Bible is simply its incredible consistency. 
You see, God's word is incredibly consistent both internally and externally. Internally, there are 66 individual books written on three continents over in the, throughout three different languages over a period of about around 1,500 years by more than 40 authors from all kinds of various walks of life and backgrounds and cultures, and yet the same story is presented in all of them. There is a consistent message throughout the, the, the account of God's word. There is incredible consistency and unity, and we'll talk more about that in an upcoming week. But the Bible's not just internally consistent, it's externally consistent as well. Skeptics have often regarded the Bible as mythological, but what we even see throughout archaeological finding is that over and over again, archaeology has confirmed the historicity of God's word. And we see that throughout, we see that happening over and over again. So it doesn't take blind faith to affirm the reliability of the Bible, but that's just half of trustworthiness, right? Trustworthiness is about reliability, but also truthfulness. And, and so the question is, is what this book has to say actually true? Is it right? Is it, is it good? And at River City, we hold firmly to both the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible. Those are two doctrines that basically mean this, that, that mean that we believe about the Bible that in its entirety, it is free from falsehood and fraud and deceit, and that it is right in all that it teaches. And so the obvious follow-up question to that is like, okay, if, if we believe that the Bible is reliable, if we believe that it's true, like, do you just take everything in there literally then? And the problem is, is that is an overly simplistic question. You see, the Bible is made up of 66 books with many genres and types of literature, including poetry and historical narrative and wisdom literature and prophecy and letters and all different kinds of literature. And so when Jesus says that he is the door, no, he's not actually a door, right? I think we can all agree on that. He's being metaphorical there. When, when the psalmist writes about the pains of his heart, is that literal? no. But that is also not the point, right? It's poetry. You see, conversely, though, when Luke, the doctor and historian, writes in, he says, in his carefully investigated and orderly account, when Luke says that Jesus died and that he rose from the dead, yes, we take that literally. When, likewise, Jesus himself believed that Jonah was in the belly of a whale and Moses parted the Red Sea, yes, we do take those things literally. The problem is that when we reduce the Bible and oversimplify it, what happens is we undermine it altogether. We need to do the hard work of learning to understand the context of what we're reading to be able to apply it and understand it rightly. Earlier in 2 Timothy, Paul, he exhorts Timothy to correctly handle the word of truth. See, what that means is that, what that assumes is that there's a wrong way to handle God's word. And that happens all the time, right? Which many people do. You can twist and manipulate and proof text and misquote and remove from the context all kinds of stuff in the Bible so that it basically says anything that you want it to say. You see, but that's not what it means to have Scripture be our highest authority. You see, instead, having Scripture as our highest authority is about having such a high regard for God's Word that we treat it with incredible respect and honor, that we study it carefully not flippantly, and that we, lay our, that we lay our opinions and our presuppositions at the feet of God's word, asking it to shape and form our own thinking rather than bringing our own ideologies to God's word and asking it to affirm what we already believe and think. No, we want God's word to shape our own thinking and to transform us. 
We ask good questions and we allow our assumptions to be found wrong. See, we must carefully handle the word of God and do the hard work of looking into the background and the context to understand the reality that God's word, while it is written for us, it's not written to us. And so we need to do the hard work of understanding the context and being able to apply that rightly into our lives and accurately. You see, to have a robust faith, you also need to have a robust mind. You see, a blind faith is not what God is after, and it certainly does not honor him. He is the wisdom of all the ages. He's not after a blind and ignorant faith. Before we get to the last point, I just want to highlight one thing. See, when it comes to believing that the Bible is the trustworthy record of the word of God, sometimes Christians say things like, there is undeniable proof, there's unquestionable evidence, we have 100% certainty and the reality is, is that's just simply not true, and it's also unhelpful. You see, while I believe that there is very good and convincing evidence that the Bible is God's word and that it is reliable, there isn't 100% proof. God does not provide 100% proof. If he did, everyone would be forced to believe it, and that's not how God works. I think it's more accurate and helpful to say that there is evidence which demands a verdict. You see, the claims that the Bible makes are huge, and they are hugely important. And the evidence that supports the reliability and the trustworthiness of God's word is significant. It demands an accounting. It demands that we think deeply about it, not just because it is, there is evidence, but because the claims that it makes are so huge and so important. It's something that we need to think deeply about and we need to have an opinion about, right? It's not like the Mandalorian, right? Who cares what you think about that, right? I mean, it is great, objectively, but it's irrelevant, right? God's word is something that we need to think deeply about. And the what we think about it and the opinion that we have of it, it, it matters. It's really important. And so scripture should be our highest authority because it's God's word and because it is trustworthy. And the third reason Paul gives for Timothy why God's word, for the supremacy of God's word, is that it is sufficient, it's sufficient to teach us everything we know about how to be saved and how to be made right with God. Verse 15, he says, From infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. You see, the reality is, is that if we want to know who God is and we not want to know how to be made right with him, then we look to his word for the answers. And we compare whatever some other people or whatever someone has to say or whatever some church has to say, we compare it with what God's word has to say. And it's God's word that is the final authority it is sufficient to teach us what we need for salvation. But also, Paul says, it's sufficient to teach us everything we need to know about sanctification, about how to grow up spiritually. Verse 17, he writes, all scriptures God breathed, and it's useful, he says, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. He goes on, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, if we want to know how we're supposed to live, if we want to know what is true and right and good, if we want our lives, if we want to know what it is that God wants from us and what our lives are intended to be, then we go to the source of truth. We go to his word because it is sufficient. It is enough to teach us not just to know about him, not just how to be made right with him, but it's, it is sufficient to teach us what it looks like to live a life of worship unto him. God's word is our highest authority because it is trustworthy. It's his very word, and it is sufficient. 
And that is a, a truth that we are unashamed to hold here at River City. Every week when we gather together, we together open God's word and we seek to submit ourselves to its authority. We want to see and understand rightly what it has to say and we want to allow our lives and our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes to be shaped by the word of God rather than our own thinking. See, what we believe about this book, it changes everything. It's so important that we think rightly about it. If you're here this morning and you're in the process of figuring out what you think about the Bible and about the God that it reveals, I just want you to know you're welcome here. And I'm on, in fact, I'm honored that you to have you here this morning, that you join us this morning. And I just want you to know your questions are welcome here. Your, your doubts are welcome here. Your process is welcome here. And if there's any way that I can serve you, I just encourage you to ask. I'd love to help. I don't always have all the answers to every questions, but I do have time to honor your questions. And so if you have questions about that, come talk to me. I'd love to process that with you. I want to encourage you to wrestle with the claims that the Bible makes about itself, and more importantly, about who and what it proclaims. You see, there are hard things in God's word. Not, not all of it is good news. One author I, I listened to this week, a pastor I listened to this week, he said it this way. He says, this book exposes you, but don't run from that because it's here that God opens the door for a reformation of the soul. As you see your sin, you will see the Savior and how greatly he has met your need. Wrestle with the truths that God's word has to It's meant for your life and for your joy and for your good, but sometimes it will be hard. Secondly, if you're a Christian here this morning, I hope that you've been encouraged. I hope that you have learned something, not just about what we believe about God's word, but about why we believe those things. See, it's not just enough to believe something. You need to understand why. Again, God is not just after Christians whose face is blind and ignorant, who don't ask questions, who, who just, just put it all out there on faith. It's not what honors him. He's a God who is the wisdom of all the ages. So let's use our minds to think rightly about him and his word. I hope that your confidence in the Bible has grown, and I hope that in result it makes you all the more joyful about the good news that it proclaims. And I hope it makes you all the more eager to faithfully and carefully study it so that you might know and live in light of God's word and that you might be all the more fervent to submit your heart and your life, your thinking, your attitudes, all of who you are under the good authority of God's word. D.A. Carson, he writes this, he says, the doctrine of sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our highest authority, is no mere slogan. It's not a creedal point to be checked off with approval from a list. Either scripture establishes what the gospel is, calls people back to it, and transforms God's people with his spirit-anointed truth, shaping them into conformity by, with his son, or it is but an empty boast. So as we seek to be a church that honors the word of the Lord, let us be, seek to be faithful stewards of the word of truth that we have. Let us correctly handle it so that we might enjoy and treasure the God that it proclaims and the salvation that he brings. You see, what we're doing every week when we take communion, when we celebrate, is, is we're reminding ourselves about the good news that the gospel proclaims. 
See, we know that, that the truth that we know and are made right by God, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, to his glory alone, with scripture alone as our final and decisive authority on all that is true. And in communion, what we're doing is we're remembering that, the, remembering with the bread that it reminds us of Jesus' body, which was broken for us as he lived the life that we should have lived. And the drink reminds us of his blood, which was shed for us as he died the death that our rebellious lives deserve to die and that on the cross he traded places with us. Communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It does not change your status or your standing with him in any way. Instead, it is a chance for us to remember. To remember that we were once enemies of God who God chose to love and adopt as his family. And the only way that happens is when by faith we put our trust in the unmerited, undeserved grace of God. See, that's the message that the Bible proclaims. That's the truth that it heralds. God's word is our trustworthy, sufficient record of the very word of God And so might we be a people, might we be a church that joyfully and thankfully and wholly trusts it as our highest authority. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful to get to come and worship you today. And we're thankful that we have your word, your very word. We're grateful that it is trustworthy and reliable. God, we're thankful as well that it is sufficient. It is what we need. And so, God, we pray that you would help us as a people to to lift up your word to its rightful place as our highest authority. As we think about what it is to know you and what it is to live and what is right and true and good, God, help help, help us to place your word in its rightful place as our highest authority in all those things. God, we ask that that would result in our good and our joy. We're thankful, God, that you promise it does. God, but more than anything, we want it to result in your glory as we as a people herald and treasure your word given to us that we might know you through it, that others might know you through it. God, help us to see it rightly, to believe it wholly, and to submit ourselves to it entirely. God, for our good and your great glory, we ask it. Amen.